You've seen all kinds of movies, but you've never seen anything like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is wonderfully weird. They're probably foreigners with ways different than our own. It's fabulously freaky. It's a trip to transsexual Transylvania. The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Transsexual Transylvania. The story is strange. But tonight is the night that my beautiful creature is destined to be born! The songs are super. The scenery is smashing. The cast is completely crazy. Junior Chamber of Commerce, Brad. There's a mad scientist named Frank N. Furter. Come up to the lab and see what's on the slab. And Rocky, his incredible creature. I knew he was in with a bad crowd, but it was worse than I imagined. A sinister servant named Riff Raff. I remember doing the time war. And Brad and Janet. My name's Brad Majors. Just a couple of clean-cut kids. This is my fiance, Janet Weiss. Touch it, touch it, touch it, touch me. I wanna be dirty. Eddie. Magenta. Columbia. <laughs> Dr. Scott. Great Scott! So give yourself over to absolute pleasure. Don't See the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Hello, this is Lee, and this is The Locust Files. I'm here today with the wonderful Zach Hepburn. Zach Hepburn is a Melbourne-based film critic, film programmer, and cinema manager. Currently, he appears on the nationally broadcast ABC News Breakfast as the resident film critic for the weekly Now Showing segment. Zach is also the general manager of Melbourne's iconic Astor Theatre, in which he curates and operates the Astor eclectic programming of repertory and event cinema. Zach regularly uh, moderates Q&A events screenings with filmmakers and performers as well so welcome zach how are you it's nice to be here lee i'm very well thank you yes it's been a while since we've seen each other since this 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 thing's sort of taken over the world it's it's uh, <laughs> uh, 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 we're referring to it in the industry as the intermission 
Yeah, that's a very lengthy one. Um, So let's start with that, actually, and we'll talk about the Astor um, stuff first off. So let's begin with the Astor and the programming at the lovely Astor as our first point of conversation. So at the point, of course, of this recording, we've had the the COVID-19 crisis, and, of course, cinemas have copped it. There's closure, cancellation of screenings, etc. But now, slowly, restrictions are sort of starting to ease, and the Astor is starting to deliver what it delivers so well once again, and you've programmed uh, a bunch of films and you've released that programming and a lot of the sessions have sold out which is fantastic and that's also an incredible uh, insight um, into audiences being hungry for being at a beautiful cinema like the Astor to watch classic movies as well as um, not so classic you know newer films so I'd like to hear about that Um, but please first and foremost for all our listeners explain what the Astor is because it's such a wonderful iconic institution here in Melbourne but obviously you know everyone listening might not know it so tell me more about the Astor. Well, the Astor is the last single screen continuously operating theatre in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, It was built in 1936 and has essentially been a cinema in the grand old fashion since then. We have two levels, a dress circle and a stall section. We seat close to a thousand patrons and we habitually run uh, double features essentially, uh, retrospective double features uh, we often do have new release films if they're offered in a celluloid format because the Asta, aside from its lovely art deco architecture and legacy of introducing you know, Melburnians to uh, all different sorts of cinema mm-hmm. is renowned for its celluloid projection we have 35mm projection capabilities as well as 70mm capabilities uh, and also digital as well but it's really the film that uh, draws in the audience so when we have a a, a new release film say for example uh, last year we had uh, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on a 35mm print Uh, that's a very special occasion for us because we play these new films in a way that audiences generally can't engage with them at other cinematic locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we like to put a bit of uh, panache into our presentation. We often do curated pre-shows of retrospective trailers or adverts. And, and the calendar, which is a, a 12-week screening calendar, which is a, a printed sort of grid, that's an institution in Melbourne. It's often uh, referred to as the uh, the wallpaper of uh, bathroom doors, yeah. uh, if you like. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, and, you know, I was always a fan of the Astor growing up. Uh, it's almost a cinematic rite of passage, I think, going to the Astor uh, as a Melbourneian or, or, or someone who visits Melbourne. And uh, there's just, a, I suppose, a, a mystique to it. Uh, you, when you walk through the front door, you feel like you're stepping into a, a different time period. And that's, you know, partly because... The building's been so well preserved, thankfully. Mm. Uh, it's you know escaped the kind of clutches of development. And it, it is this sort of island uh, on the corner of this very busy intersection uh, in uh, St Kilda. And it's been there you know, since 1936 and people have been going to see films there since 1936. So everyone in Melbourne that's into film, when you meet them and you eventually get around to talking about the Aster, everyone has an Aster story. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's always some... You know, really beautiful piece of nostalgia. And it's not kind of cheap nostalgia. It's actual sort of like very genuine nostalgia that people have had a lovely experience there. And that has been very cherished to them. And that's also been the catalyst for them to 
track down other movies or engage with other films. I used to refer to the calendar as sort of like a, a, a film school on paper uh, as you sort of kind of weave your way through the different genres and, and whatnot. So, yeah, that, that's the sort of heritage of the building and it's uh, thankfully still there and I, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to uh, be a part of it for the, the last five years now. Fantastic. Actually, let's sidetrack. Let's, let's forget the COVID thing at the moment. What was your first... Um, experience personally at, at the Astor as a, as a young, young, young fella. <laughs> I went to see. Can you remember? Wow, cool. Because I can't. Yeah. I was thinking about that before I was interviewing. I was like, I think uh, for me, I think it was a Disney double as a kid, but I'm not sure. But yeah, let, let's hear yours. I, I went to see two very different films there uh, in reasonable close proximity. I would have been, I reckon, about. 10 or 12 years old, mm-hmm. and uh, the first film I saw there was a, a matinee session of uh, the Beatles' Yellow Submarine cool. animated film, uh, which, you know, at, at that point, uh, you know, it was kind of like a rite of passage. I, I just sort of started to get into the Beatles' music. I uh, hadn't seen any of their films. This is the first actual Beatles film I saw, which is, you know, ironic given that the actual Beatles aren't in it very much. Yeah. Um, but seeing it presented on celluloid there with the the incredible sound and the kind of psychedelic animation and that that just that really sort of pure hand-drawn animation uh was you know incredibly mind-blowing uh subsequently i went back just probably a couple years later i grew up in a country town so uh uh, trips to uh uh, st kilda were few and far between uh but when i got there i would have been probably about 13 the second time i saw a a later evening session of david lynch's a razorhead nice and i just started getting into the, the world of david lynch via uh, Twin Peaks, uh, which I discovered via a, a VHS box set. And uh, th- th- those two sort of cornerstones really illustrate to me the sort of um, almost kind of Venn diagram of the Aster right. in, in a way. And, you know, there's a, a real sense of uh, occasion going to a matinee session during the day, like you've, you've gone into a, a theatrical production almost. And then there's also the sort of, I suppose, for lack of a better term, sort of grindhouse midnight movie aesthetic of the, the sort of like broken down palace mm-hmm. uh, where you go and it's sort of it's sort of dangerous and it's sort of grimy and you, you see something that you don't expect to see on the big screen. So yeah, th- th- those two sort of experiences were really kind of uh, very formative in, in the way I sort of saw cinema, but also how I appreciated that the Astor was this thing sort of like on the, the satellite fringe compared to your kind of multiplex environment, which is predominantly what I'd seen films in previously. Yeah, absolutely. And also it's interesting you mentioned, um, you know, the Astor being a gateway for people. See, for me, uh, being a teenager and growing up, I actually loved seeing stuff that I was so comfortable with, but seeing it at the Astor on film, on print. Um, so it was, it was for me, it was a seldom experience where I'd see something that I had ne- not seen yet, if that makes sense. So I'd, I'd grow up with all this stuff and go, oh, fuck, they're screening it at the Astor. I need to see it on the big screen. I need to see it in 35 or 70 mil. How amazing, blah, blah. And I remember that distinctly like just being able to see these things you know for the first time on the massive screen and I have to emphasize how beautiful and huge that screen is and the sound and everything but just that that experience was always awesome for me because it was like you know revisiting classics that you're so used to watching on tv on your television on VHS and whatever so that's really interesting so was seeing the first you know first time seeing something like Yellow Submarine did that actually sort of Besides the Beatles stuff, because I mean, what else is there? There's Help and 
what what other films are there for the oh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club, which is not the Beatles at all, but based on their their album. But um, there was there else other things from watching, say, Yellow Submarine on the big screen that would make you kind of maybe appreciate animation more and and delve into the side uh, that side, or even like acid sort of centric cinema or psychedelia in film or that kind of you know uh, experimental filmmaking. Did that kind of be a gateway for you to experience other films? From yeah, cinema? I mean certainly. I mean it was you know, very difficult for me at that period because this was, you know, probably, you know, uh, giving away my age, this is pre-DVD. So, you know, we, we uh, had a very small VHS depository in the, in, the, in the town that I grew up in and, you know, I basically ran through all those stuff pretty quickly. So, you know, whilst I was able to, you know, engage with, you know, maybe uh, you know, magazines like Fangoria or Starlog or, or any sort of uh, kind of uh, print material that I could get my hands on back then, mm-hmm. uh, it was very difficult to actually access any of that content. And that's why I think the Asta, uh, and there was also a, a, f- a fantastic VHS store uh, in uh, the suburb of Richmond uh, called, I think it's called Picture Search Video. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had a, a really kind of, I suppose, eclectic back catalogue that I couldn't access uh, where I grew up. And we fortunately had a friend who, who lived in that area, you know, because obviously back in those days you had to be in the sort of postcode area to be able to join uh, a video library. Uh, so I was able to get some, some VHS tapes uh, through them and watch them at their house. So, yeah, I, I think the Asta was a, a great way of accessing this content that, I couldn't get access to anywhere else. I mean, that was the first way I saw Vertigo. I mean, I saw it on 70 millimeter there, and that wow. was completely mind blowing. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, and that's why I think the Ass has always had a very, very, very uh, special uh, place in my heart. It was uh, very similar to a, a, another sort of, I suppose, cult establishment called the Valhalla Cinema, mm-hmm. uh, and they would do kind of curated programming and and double features and and, and short film compilations. Like I think I saw like a great. Uh, Ardman animation short film uh, kind of package there, which was like all on thirty five millimeter prints, and they played like Tex Avery stuff and, nice. and whatnot. So yeah, that 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 sort of access point was, was always through cinemas, uh, ironically enough, other than sort of VHS because I had such limited access to to VHS tapes initially. Cool. And so when you grew up watching stuff, how much of it was rep cinema? Like, I mean, the Astor was obviously, you know, the king in that department. It was years before something like the Cinematech started at Acme um, and Acme being something that the thing that it is um, and, you know, other sort of pop-up screenings that would be retrospective film screenings that would happen here and there. But the Astor was kind of, and the Valhalla, um, you know, they were the sort of benchmarks. How often did you go to the Astor during, say, your 20s and your teens? Uh, and what Memories. What What are some of your sort of you know pinnacle moments for you growing up? Um, you know, film experiences. You mentioned a couple, but yeah, you mentioned you know, your first two. But let's let's talk about some really kind of you know formative experiences at the Astor that would eventually, amazingly and wonderfully, thankfully, lead you to your excellent career there. But yeah, let's talk through those some of those great experiences. Well, it's, I mean, I, I started working in, in a cinema uh, when I was in, in my early 20s. So there, there was a, an interesting period where I was, you know, very much a, a, a cinema goer and I was always a cinema goer. I would, you know, routinely do double features and, you know, sort of self-curated double features of new content uh, at, at cinemas such as Greater Union in Melbourne CBD or Melbourne CBD used to have a, a number of uh, cinemas which have sadly all gone mm. 
now, but you could access so many different films from so many different theaters. And the really beautiful part of that was, you know, only certain theaters would play certain distributors' films. So if you wanted to see a different distributor's film, you kind of have to run across the road <laughs> and do this sort of like travel log of uh, of cinema during the day. But the Astor was always this thing you kind of would go back to uh, because they just would always have seasons of films on, on new prints that you couldn't see anywhere else. And I, you know, I also remember seeing really bad prints there that had sort of obviously lived in someone's garage maybe for, you know, 20 years and they'd been kind of exhumed <laughs> in order to buy. I remember I saw uh, John Carpenter's The Thing there on, on 35mm and that, that, that had been something that I'd seen only uh, on VHS before that in a kind of very, very truncated pan and scan version and it was just the first time I wanted to see it and it's beautiful kind of scope image and the print broke like five or six times throughout the film because it was just so brittle and it had just been you know around the, the edges so much you know it, the print was almost begging itself to, to stop playing right. <laughs> kind of self-immolating um, but you know th- th- those sort of things are really formative because you know nowadays it's it's uh, very rare that you, you'll see a, a film break in a, a projector but you know luckily but uh, majority of things are you know digitally projected uh, projected so um yeah, I think for me, it was just the, the occasion of going. It didn't really matter what I was seeing. And you just sort of, you know, maybe Monday night was Aston night. Right. And whatever they were playing, you, you would go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, Acme, to a degree, also had a large kind of influence on me. They used to do this late night program called Freaky Fridays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would I would go to that uh, with a few friends. And, you know, that, again, was just a, this um, real interesting experience because Acme obviously had a, a large uh, I think I suppose a large grasp of, of prints because they could access international archives and, and things that you wouldn't see on a print at the Astor you'd probably get to see at Acme because they just had the ability to access different libraries and I remember uh, a friend and I we went to a, a screening of Cisco Pike nice. with Chris Christopherson and, and, and Gene Hackman and um, there was us uh, another person and another person doing their knitting. During, <laughs> yeah. during I the love that, that was probably me, but yeah, I, I love I love that that was the culture, wasn't it? It was like that you know eight or nine people in a, in, a, in a cinema watching these films. And that, that was, it, it, it was routinely the same eight or nine people. Yeah. But <laughs> everyone had their own really unique personalities, and that was that I, that, that kind of I, I I suppose it was this kind of you know connective tissue you have with that person that was in the same venue as you there was just this you never spoke to them you never really knew them but you just had this kind of idea that you're on the same wavelength and it was, it was really kind of exciting um and you know obviously the melbourne international film festival uh for, for for many different kind of iterations of its program did some really interesting late night stuff i was always very drawn to late night stuff and I think that was just probably partly because A, I, I didn't live in the city at that time so it was sort of a this sort of kind of idea of going out in the city at night and seeing a movie at 10, 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. was, was really evocative uh, and I remember going to um, Joe Dante's The Movie Orgy mm. uh, at uh, the Great Union Cinema as part of me and that was just like you know you, you went in at midnight and you came out at like 3 or 4 a.m. or whenever you came out and that was just um, just an incredible experience so w- when I actually started working in, in cinema. I, I started out as a, a front of house attendant at, at the Westgarth Cinema in the, the suburb of Northcote, which is in Melbourne. Uh, and I was just, you know, what we kind of refer to as a popcorn jockey. You know, you basically were just there doing front of housing. And, you know, I was there for long enough that I kind of 
got to know the people in charge and got to know the, 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 the executives in, in the operating company. And I had the access to some 35 millimeter prints and I suggested that we do a late night program called Cult Vault, mm-hmm. which was a, a, a curated program that I put together with retro trailers and everything that I'd sort of seen elsewhere, but it was kind of mine to be able to just kind of mold into this thing. And we did, you know, I think we opened up with a Dracula has risen from the grave. It was a you know, really kind of dinged up cut film print, but it was great. And we got really good audiences for it because at that point really wasn't a lot of late night cinema or curated cinema going on mm-hmm. in, in Melbourne. At least there would be very few strands that people could latch on to and have someone introduce it and, and talk about the film in the kind of contextualized way mm-hmm. and even we used to do it at midnight and people would still come and I'd, I'd be there every friday night at midnight and stand up in front of the audience and kind of you know say say you know a few words about the film and it was just that idea of a signature and that connection with your audience i think yep. that was something that i was really yearning for when i used to go to a lot of these films so being able to sort of you know, be involved with that and offer that to an audience was was something that was very special to me, and that that really kind of gave me the the germ of programming. And since then, it's something I've constantly evolved and, and worked within. Yeah, absolutely. And I I, lo- I loved going to some of those. I remember seeing Mad Monster Party, and um, you did a beautiful screening of The Howling. Um, going back to the Joe Dante thing, um, yeah, you and I survived that. It was it was fantastic. I remember when he introduced it because he was down here for it. He said, "I'm not sticking around for this either," but we all did. But that was awesome, and I miss Greater Union. Yeah, I, um, our listeners um, must know that they the city Melbourne CBD had you know village uh village cinema and hoyts the old hoyts was gorgeous that fantastic carpet uh, and greater union which is the, probably the most recent to sort of die um in, in in a city of those old cinemas but yeah we had some great stuff back in the in the in the day um but thankfully that store survives which is fantastic um so you you know fast forward from your awesome work with um uh the west Garth and then the nova because you you moved your your late night sessions to the Nova, uh, which is another great cinema here. Uh, then you'd move on to working at the Astor as programmer, which is amazing. It's a stunning role to have. Um, how do you personally set your programming? Like, how did you sort of, how, how do you sit down and go, okay, what 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 what's month, March going to look like? You know, and how do you sort of balance the 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 representation of say different genres and periods? Um, are there certain films that constantly sort of draw an audience? So you'll sort of you know. Um, chuck them in there um, you know just for the numbers sake um, are there cult screenings that sort of do really well are there risky films that you kind of want to bring in and you do it and they do turn out to be successes how do you sort of sit down and sort of decide on what you're going to program and how much new content will get in there as well because obviously you know films that sort of have their their mainstream run then end up at the Astor say a couple of months after their run or uh, I'm sure that's how it works I'm guessing or they sort of pop up later um, but yeah I just want to sort of hear how you kind of discuss with yourself how you sort of structure your your programming. It's a very good question, and I'm, I, you know, it's it, you know, uh, forgive me if I go on tangents with this. Please do. It, it's a big <laughs> question. Um, you know, first off, I think you know, really, I, when I, I I came into the role as, as general manager of the Astor, who also looked after the programming, the Astor was such an institution that you know we we inherited. The, the mantle of, of the building. I think you know, the, the way I like to look at it is that the Astor is this sort of organic beast in a way that you know people have their time as the sort of custodian 
of it. Mm. And the, the the previous custodians, a, a man uh, named George Florence and his team, they, they were they were there for a number of years, uh, many 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 years, and that was really their their baby. It was something that they forged and crafted and persevered with. And I think you know all credit to them. They they carved out a, a really a really lovely way of engaging with their audience and you know they would do you know retrospective focuses they do new print focuses they do just kind of one-off screenings so when i sort of inherited that i i was very cognizant of what they had done in the past because the asta meant a lot to a lot of different people and you didn't want to just sort of come in and and wipe that slate clean because that would be uh, i think you know uh, really disingenuous to the audience but also the legacy of, of the brand and the building mm-hmm. so uh, I was very cognizant of that going in so you know you know I've always felt with, with programming a, a blank slate like that you know we, we operate from uh, a Thursday to Monday and we don't program on Tuesdays or Wednesdays because we keep those nights free for, for events or private hires or or anything that might come around so because we do a 12-week calendar you have to kind of project yourself into the future a lot mm-hmm. uh, so you want to give yourself a little bit of wiggle room in case something inevitably comes up mm-hmm. uh, so for me looking at that sort of slate you know certain nights have certain sort of fields um, and, and what I mean by that is there's just this sort of kind of idea that you know you, you don't want to see Amadeus on a Friday night. I mean, you could, and it's a great film, and if you want to see it on a Friday night, brilliant. But maybe you want to see, I'd say, maybe a, a Terminator double feature on a Friday night. So there's this sort of this idea of, of, of curating a vibe, right. for lack of a better term, and it's it's something that, you know, it, it, it is very fluid, and it doesn't have to be set in stone. But we always treated certain nights as a certain sort of genre focus or a certain sort of elemental vibe focus. So, you know, Sunday nights, but perhaps reserved for a Marx Brothers double feature. Mm. Or, you know, Sunday afternoon is your uh, screening of uh, you know, Ben-Hur on 70mm or something. So there's just this sort of like architecture that you use as a framework. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to use it every week, but that's your kind of core structure. Now, Monday nights, uh, at least in Melbourne, a lot of bars are closed, uh, a lot of hospitality venues are closed. So, you know, we tend to do more cult cinema on a Monday night because the, the younger crowd who are generally working on a, a Friday or Saturday night or, or have something else to do don't have much to do on a Monday night. So they're more inclined to, to, to come to something on a Monday night, or at least in our experience, that's been the case. So we'll do a filmmaker focus. What we've been doing recently is, you know, we'll do a, a, a filmmaker focus and do it in chronological order. We ran every David Lynch film in chronological order. We did every David Cronenberg film in, in chronological order. And again, there's that sort of habitual rhythm to that where people will just come once a week as this sort of touch point. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that I found really interesting is if you at least with the Astor, is if, if you run a film sort of next to each other, like on a, a Thursday through to a Monday, people come very complacent with, with oh, I'll get to that or I'll go and see it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you, if you run it sort of, you know, downwards the calendar and, and people know that, oh, this is only occurring once, it, it becomes much more of a sort of sensation or an event that, that people need to get to. Uh, and so that, that was sort of our, 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 our I suppose, blueprint. And that changes from time to time, and, and and we alter it. But you know, it's it, it's it's a difficult thing to try and get the rhythm of the audience down because you don't really know what 
what people want to see. You can always have an educated guess about it, but you never actually know if you've been able to hit it on the head properly until you actually see the the admits of the night or all the bums on seats. You know, so you know you can kind of wax philosophical about why you think something should be uh, popular. I mean, I remember we, we went to great lengths to do uh, the, the the Magic Lantern cycle, the Kenneth Anger yeah. uh, uh, session, and you know that was uh, something I've always wanted to program and something I'd certainly never seen myself in that sort of sequence at a cinema environment, maybe something more reserved for a gallery space. And, you know, I thought that was going to be just, you know, incredibly popular. And whilst it had, you know, decent admissions, it certainly wasn't anywhere near where I wanted it to be. Mm. Um, everyone who came obviously had a very incredible experience and a lot of them still mention it to me to this day. Whereas, you know, I'll, I'll put on the, um, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film, uh, which just had its anniversary this year. And we nearly had a sold-out theatre for it. And mm. that's something, whilst I know that film's very popular, I would never have imagined that that film would have been able to generate that amount of interest. Mm. So, you know... Do you feel, just to jump in there, Zach, sorry. Um, do you feel like you kind of... Um, and this is not to sort of... Because I love that Turtles film. I think it's a fantastic... One of my first VHS... No, it wasn't, but it was definitely a VHS I bought <laughs> um, uh, when I was like 10 or 11. And I love that movie. It's, it's one of the last sort of gritty New York films, really. Um, and I absolutely love the Kenneth Anger stuff. And that was a superb um, event. It was a beautiful event. And and um, introed by Sally Christie, who's a former guest on this podcast. But And they looked fantastic. Those films looked so beautiful. But do you feel like it's – do you kind of take up the responsibility of being someone who needs to sort of, I don't know, not be a tastemaker? That's a horrible term. But do you feel like you want to sort of educate people and sort of say, hey, it's cool that you like the turtles. It's great. We all do. But maybe try this. Is that something that kind of comes into play when you're sort of programming um, from a personal level as well as a business-sided level? Like, do you feel like you've got that responsibility to sort of introduce people to film uh, that they're probably not that familiar with? Um, yes and no. I think you know if you're a film fan and and you pick up on that, you'll like it. And if you don't, you probably won't pick up on it anyway. So I think mm. uh, there's a, a, a bit of a sort of you know either or proclamation with that. You know what I like to do, probably getting into that area is you know we'll have a, 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 a double feature of, of, of a new release film, and yep. then we'll put a retro film as the B film. And the idea is that maybe the people that came to see Midsummer, we'll stick around and watch Village of the Damned. Mm. And that, that idea that, you know, with, with all due respect to audiences, if we just put on Village of the Damned on its own, regrettably, maybe a, not a lot of people would come. Mm. But if you put it on with a new film that people are, uh, are more aware of just due to the, the marketing and, and all the other sort of uh, influences that are going on, the fact that you hook them in to get them there maybe you can hold them over to stick around for the second film. So that, that B film, uh, and I use that term with all due respect, mm-hmm. and that, that, that B film you can really play around with and be inventive with sometimes, and that is a lot of fun to do. And I think that's where maybe that, that idea of being that sort of curator and having that curatorial signature, uh, knowing that your audience will trust you mm. to stick around for that second film that they've never heard of, that, that I think is really exciting and, and something that you have to really work hard to uh, build up with the audience because if we had just done stuff like that when we kind of reopened, 
people wouldn't know what you were talking about, but the idea that people kind of become in sync with that mm-hmm. is, is something I think we've developed over the, the five years that I've been working in the program. Most certainly. And it is, it's development of trust with the audience and them to trust you with the programming. And also, um, it's fun to play with the theme. So, yeah, if you've got something like Midsummer, you could chuck on, yeah, the Wicker Man, you know, keep the folk horror thing going or whatever. That's fun to do as well as a programmer. That's that's cool. Um, also, do you feel like the Astor is like a really healthy, perfect balance between... Um, real, and I'm not, you know, <laughs> suggesting that you have to be either or, but, you know, cinephilia, you know, is sort of so broad as well, but real cinephiles who are kind of dedicated film nerds um, who absolutely love all cinema and will go anyway, and then your people who dabble or people who just want a night out who want to see the new film. Yeah, I think you got to get the balance right. It's all about balance. I mean, I think that's why the Astros always held in really, I think, unique spot in the, the particularly not only the Australian film scene but particularly the Melbourne film scene, mm. it, it has that balance. You, know, you you can go and check out um, the latest Hollywood release six weeks after it's been in cinemas because that, that that's part of the stipulation of a, a repertory location or a sub run location is that you know very seldomly we can play uh, first release films uh, when they're in other first release uh, locations except if there's some sort of special caveat like it being on a film print or something like that uh so you'll 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 definitely have audience members who just want to come because they've they've missed the opportunity to see it on the big screen and they want to have that big screen experience for a night out as you say and then you'll have the people that want to come to to see that 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 very specific 35 millimeter print that you're playing for that film and there's you know uh, a real mixture of audiences and that i think goes back to where we started the conversation with is you know every night has a different feel like Mm. you're not going to put that you know recently released blockbuster film like you know the, you know, you know it, we do very well out of playing the, the marvel films for example because people want to maybe come back and see them for a second time because they saw it initially upon release and you know whilst they enjoyed it they probably want to see it again or they want to introduce it to other people who haven't seen it you know you're not you're not going to put that film on a monday night you're going to put that film on a saturday night mm-hmm. so there's that just sort of roadmap aesthetic of of kind of paginating it out to to say look this is the sort of film that will attract this audience on that night. It's never going to be perfect because, you know, you're a single screen location, so you can't ever get it right all the time. But, you know, you can kind of have this idea that, you know, an audience who wants a, a, a fun night out is more inclined to be interested in doing that on a Friday or a Saturday rather than a Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really love the fact that the Astor has great space for hosting events that you know um, can be curated within the screenings and correlate with the screening. So, for instance, MIF um, with you guys with Melbourne Film Festival um, did the wonderful Mayor Darren collected works with Thurston Moore performing over them. So he played um, while they ran, and that was phenomenal. That was stunning to see. And then you'd had, um, was it the Highlander screening with Christopher Lambert? And th- th- So there's all that sort of stuff that you, you guys do which is awesome can you talk us through some of those events because that's a spectacular thing as well because the stage is stunning at the Astor and the the presentation it's like you know this beautiful art deco cinema with all this space um to do these kind of events so can you talk us through some of those wonderful events that you've sort of uh uh you know uh, launch padded and 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 um put on yeah that's the sort of other end of the Aston, which is really unique because I think that all really started as probably a lot of, you know, event cinema or kind of audience participation cinema or sort of cinema that's 
just not going in to watch the film and leave. Like Paul really sort of started with Rocky Horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show is something that the Astor has always uh, been involved with and will always be involved with. You know, we have uh, the Shadow Cast uh, offered by uh, a group uh, of uh, Melbourne enthusiasts called the Pelvic Thrusts, and they Shadow Cast out the film uh, usually with a crowd of about eight or nine hundred people and. I got to tell you, cleaning that theatre the next day is—you'll is, <laughs> question every life decision that you've made up to that point. Uh, can I ask a question? Jump in. Can I ask a question? Have you ever screened the Rocky Horror Picture Show without the the callbacks and without the the shadow cast, etc.? So not at the after because it, it, it's so ingratiated. Of course. In the experience. <laughs> Have you ever been to a screening of Rocky Horror without it? I have actually. I did. I did one at the the Westgarth uh, part of the Cold Vault program many, 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 many years ago, and you know it, it is. It, it's they're two very different experiences, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, I, I don't know personally which one's better because I think you, you you glean different things from the film through those two different experiences. I think mm. it's a, a very valid experience seeing a film without that sort of shadow casting or or, or overt audience participation and then there's also this it's almost it's almost dangerous uh being in a crowd of 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 900 people all doing the time or or, 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 you know engaging with with the film in that way so yeah there's a real kind of excitement to it but the rocky r really really was the catalyst along with the blues brothers uh was the catalyst of these sort of i suppose you know for lack of a better term, kind of audience participation or, or, or audience uh, interactive sessions. Uh, where we, I think, really hit it into the next kind of stratosphere was uh, the Australia Day public holiday uh, in in uh, this country. Uh, you know, has a has a very rightfully uh, a lot of um, I think you know, a lot of criticism and a, a lot of worryment about uh, what that date actually means. And I think there was a period there in cinema where very, very, I suppose, overtly patriotic films were being played for, for whatever reason at cinemas, and that was something I always reacted very bad to. Uh, so I wanted to do something completely different. I thought, you know, this the uh, the idea that we're um, uh, celebrating Australia Day on this date is uh, very, very problematic. So let's let's do something else mm-hmm. that uh, is going to engage people. And we started to do uh, the. Stop Making Sense Talking Heads Dance Party. Right. And for whatever reason, that that Stop Making Sense film had, had sort of just been completely and utterly eroded from the, the Melbourne cinema-going scene. So when we first played it, uh, and I'd played it at a couple of other locations prior to getting to the Astor, and it still was something that I only seem to be doing. Um, it's probably just because I'm a huge Talking Heads fan. But... Someone at that session, and I had I had no idea this was going to happen. Someone at that session, it was probably about five or six hundred people in the crowd. Someone decided that in the middle of the film, they were going to run up on the stage and start dancing. Right. And then two other people did it, and then three other people did it, and then the whole audience started to dance, <laughs> and it just became this sort of infectious wave through the crowd for them getting up and dancing and. You know, we, we just recently did it uh, at the start of the year before um, all the cinemas started to have to wind down due to the uh, the pandemic issue. And you know, we, we we had a sold out crowd, and, and now it's it's this sort of event that people mark in their calendars. We only do it once a year, and I think that's another really valid point with this sort of interactive idea of this sort of idea of uh, eventization of cinemas. You can't 
reduce your orange too often. You've got to make them events. You've got to keep them very, very sparse because the idea that you can't get a ticket to this session or this session does these crazy things, mm-hmm. you can't repeat that the next week because it just completely only loses its kind of power. Mm-hmm. So the idea that we only do this stop making sense film once a year, we do it on the, the Australia Day public holiday, uh, really has this sort of sense of urgency. It sells out every time. So yeah, fabulous, and that's something you did. Like that's something you created and brought to the Astro and brought to Melbourne for you know like an up yours to Australia Day. It's great. Yeah, I'm really. I'm, that's probably you know when it's all said and done. Whenever, whenever we get to the end of the the, the road, that's that's probably something I'm going to be really proud of. The, the other thing that you know really kind of took us by surprise, right before we, we shut the doors, we, we did a, a late night screening of Cats, mm-hmm. and and that <laughs> just went through the roof, wow. um, and so much so that everyone in in the industry was saying like you know everyone told me not to do it. Everyone thought it was a stupid idea, and then. A couple of weeks later, everyone started doing late night cat sessions. Wow! So, um, and not, not not the idea was not an original idea that I had. I just happened to be the first person to do it in Melbourne. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and now it's kind of you know it probably will build that kind of reputation of being one of those kind of cult films that you, as a party film, um, which you know it, need, gonna, it needs something to redeem it. Really, does I've got to, I've got to admit, like, I, when I saw that film, I. I did not care for it when I saw it with a crowd of five or six hundred people dressed as cats. That, it, change, it changes the, the DNA of that movie. Yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think that that's where it's going to hit hit its stride. Well, good on you for doing that. I'm sure Andrew Ludwig will be very happy and pleased. It's funny, like the whole um, the interactive thing, because I remember being a kid watching Fame, and that was the first introduction I had to Rocky Horror being having that cult. Um, uh, background and that kind of thing that happens, the, the call-out scene, because there's that great sequence where Maureen TV's character goes and she gets stoned during a screening of Rocky Horror and her and Ralph Garcy is like, just watch the movie, just watch the movie. He's like me, he'd be like me, like going, shut the fuck up. So uh, it's interesting to see that and then I experienced one of my first Rocky Horrors uh, late night things as a teenager and did it a few times and you know, obviously drinking and stuff's involved so that makes it kind of bearable but I remember enjoying aspects of it, but then kind of going, can't they just screen the film? So that kind of that kind of movie, do you feel like a lot of those movies get lost in the spectacle? So when people want to just see the film on its own, I know I understand that it just brings in the, the bucks and it brings in the audiences and people have a great time, and that's awesome. I'm all for that, um, you know, for things succeeding and being, you know, uh, well-received. But do you feel like a lot of those movies end up becoming solely known for that, for delivering just that. Some, some of them probably deserve it like Cats, but like does something like Rocky Horror kind of get lost in the fog or the Blues Brothers or even like a lot of sing-along sessions that um, people kind of flock to um, that sort of start to dominate the, the screening. So, for instance, Sound of Music, I don't think I've ever seen that without a sing-along for a while. I saw a beautiful print of it at the Astor actually um, without the sing-along and it was just stunning, but then there'd be the sing-alongs here and there and I would go, uh, you know. But do you feel like that, that films sort of lose their momentum without having that additional thing? In, in, in? Uh, potentially, yeah, yeah. I think they're two very different experiences and I think that's that's where, you know, a, a film and a film's legacy can sometimes sort of just, um, I suppose, sort of separate in a way. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, like I say, for us, just, just, just to speak from a personal example, it, it, it would be very hard for the Astor to play the Rocky Horror without without the interaction, mm-hmm. and that 
I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. I really don't. I don't know how to give you a straight answer on that because. Mm. I think you did. I think you said it perfectly, so eloquently. You said they're two different animals. They're two different experiences. Absolutely. And I think that's that's the ultimate, you know, response there. Um, and yeah, I totally agree with you. If, if the if the call out shadow theatre, Rocky Horror does so well, why not keep doing it? And people enjoy it and love it. So I think that's <laughs> a positive well, I think thing. I think it's a really valid point that you're making, though, because mm. I, you know, I, and I know firsthand, like a lot of people that that go to that, that Rocky Horror session that we do maybe once or twice a year a lot of them actually haven't seen the film and right. they're probably missing a lot of it to Fuck. be honest with you so right. you know it, it, it's 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 a, a real sort of flip coin you know like you know they're, i forget there's people who haven't seen it that's true yeah. it's it's um yeah they, the, the the organizers do this uh rocky horror virgins uh, sort right. of parade beforehand where you have to kind of self-nominate if you've seen it or not seen it mm-hmm. um and uh, you, you sort of paraded around the audience for, for, for being a Rocky Horror Virgin. But, yeah, look, it's it's an interesting question. I think it's a really vital question too because it, it, I, I suppose it speaks to really why why you're going. And, you know, are you going to watch a movie or are you going to have a party? Mm. And, you know, a lot of I – mean, for, me, for me, for example, you know, I, I've seen something just to use like the example, the, 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 the Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. I've seen that film a lot. Like I know that movie very well. I don't know if I need to sit in a cinema – and watch that incredibly closely because I know it almost line for line. But if I go with a few friends, uh, yeah, and maybe we have a few white Russians with or something, like the film takes on this kind of different aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it's, a, I think, a very curious question to ask someone if they've seen a film or not before they go into one of those more sort of looser sessions mm. and, and what they take home from it versus maybe if you ask them the same question if they went and watched a traditional session. And um, I think, you know, it's very difficult for me to sort of even put myself in that mind frame because I, I had generally seen the films outside of that kind of interactive environment uh, and I, I don't know if I would like it or not for the first time of me viewing a film. I, I, I can't imagine I would, to be brutally honest with you. Yeah, fair enough. Um, the the whole idea of cult cinema as well outside of, you know, audience spectatorship, etc. That's something that is really kind of uh, a huge deal at the Astor. Um, I know you've screened things like Alien, like anniversary screenings of, say, Alien. Um, you know, uh, you mentioned Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So there's this kind of um, what I guess Pauline Kael coined the popcorn junk pile films, you know, the, the big blockbuster movies that were sort of late 70s, early 80s that people – in their 30s and 40s tend to just love like they just you know it's funny there's like always the same 10 films as their top favorite films um and they do really well so can you walk us through some of those because i do know for a fact that they do do well and audiences are you know they just eat it up just to be able to see these things on the big screen as they should but say for instance like the alien screening how did that come about how was that received? What was the audience spectatorship there like? Was it kind of a reserved, you know, respectful audience or was it more kind of party? It's hard to really be a party film, really alien. But what, in regards to that kind of difference in cult cinema that isn't so rowdy, say, for instance. Yeah. Look, that, that's a really good question because you know, Alien and Aliens are, are, are along so, something, say, like 2001, a space mm. odyssey, a sort of fused into the Astor's DNA mm. and that's that's it's something that we, we do almost nearly every calendar and you know the admits for that kind of 
go on a, a bit of a wave. You, know, you, you always get good numbers to those films, but when you've got the synergy of, of an anniversary and uh, there's this, this sort of um, uh, Alien Day uh, idea, which is I think it's it's the 26th of April, which is uh, the number. Uh, it's the date that the colony in Aliens is is, is um, uh, kind of noted for being created. Um, if you do Alien and Aliens on that day you'll just see a spike in numbers because there's, there's this sort of, you know, again, that, that immediacy of needing to see those films on that day. Uh, so if you can kind of string that along with, with I think when we did the, the major Alien one we did was the, the anniversary of Alien, uh, was the, I think it was the 40th anniversary of Alien we, we did and there was a new restoration of it. We played that with a 70 millimeter print of Aliens we did some introductions to some um, some great um, speakers, uh, Emma Restwood and, 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 and Tristan Jones uh, were along to, to, to introduce the film and give it some context. We played some, uh, I think we played some Kenner Alien toy mm, adverts cool. beforehand and we played, I think it was like even the, the, the Pepsi ad they made for Alien 3. Audiences don't know you're going to do those sort of things, so it's a nice little surprise before the film that they know. Mm-hmm. And you know, generally, audiences are, are reasonably respectful at, at those at those films. Um, you know, cult, cult films, uh, for lack of a better term, can, can, can go on either way. Yeah. You know, audiences sometimes go to that and they want to purposefully laugh or goof off at the film, which <laughs> is something that I I know a lot of us don't care for. Yeah. Uh, but there's also then that 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 um, connection with the film that people love and they want to experience and there's a joyous wave of laughter or a joyous wave of just sort of acknowledgement that goes through the audience. So, yeah, I think those films, there's a real um, audience for, but if you can manage to get it on a date or an anniversary, that's when you really kind of knock it into the next level. And that, that was what we certainly saw with Aliens. That's what we saw with 2001 when we did, we did the 50th uh, anniversary season in 70mm and uh, certainly something we saw with the, the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film. It was something I was really hoping we were going to repeat with the Dick Tracy 35mm oh. season uh, that we had planned, uh, but uh, that sadly uh, fell victim to uh, the uh, viral shutdown. Uh, but it is something that I'm hopeful that we'll be able to get off the ground again uh, before 2020 is over. Please do. I'm a big fan of that, big champion of that film. Um, one of the last sort of pure Hollywood films, I feel. Um, the, so the cult film's interesting. So I want to talk about also your wonderful Halloween, uh, you know, your marathon. Do you feel like personally, see what you do is you do, you curate a whole bunch of horror films. You have surprise films that people don't know are on the, on the program or in the lineup. And then people are like, oh, cool. Awesome. Fright Night 2's on. Awesome. At like 2am. And they go all night. It's a marathon. Um, and I've been to them and love them. Um, and you've kept, you, you looked after me. <laughs> but I just want to talk about the 24-hour thing, right? Does that – do you reckon that's something that people eat up? Because I know for myself, you know, especially, uh, you know, I mean, you'd be in and out. Like, it's not something you kind of want to you, – you know, you, you need <laughs> – additional things to help you get through i guess but do you feel like that's something that's quite popular does that sort of do well like do people stick around for the whole thing is it something that generates buzz yeah ma- marathons are another love of mine and um, you know i, did <laughs> I know first, you love them <laughs> yeah i did my first uh, marathon at uh, the west garth and we just did a, a kind of from dusk till dawn uh, horror one mm. it, it's interesting the Aster one is the the real sort of like evolution of it it's called the the, the great Aster spectacular and the, the first one we did we started we just did a 
a very simple sort of like, you know, I think it was like 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. sort of marathon. And that, that was very, very popular. And I think, you know, we always, again, try to try to open with a film that's more accessible because the idea is that maybe people will kind of trail off uh, during it. So you, you, when, you, when you program a marathon, at least in my experience, you really want to like, you know, have something that's your heavy hitter at mm. the front to get people in. Maybe something a little bit less uh, punchy for the second one, but then you kind of come back again for the third. So it's a whole idea of this kind of wave that you ride. Mm-hmm. Um, when you throw in secret films, it's interesting to see the audience sort of be slightly destabilised by that, uh, and that's something I find is always really fun. Uh, I've always wanted to do a secret marathon where you don't tell people what's playing at all. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know if we're quite there yet with uh, uh, the audience trust factor and being able to actually get the admits without advertising anything, but you know, maybe maybe we'll get there someday. Um, I, I think a lot of people don't engage with marathons maybe the way they should, and as you mentioned in that question, you know, the idea is that it's sort of a, a, a transient experience. You kind of like tap in and tap out of films, mm. and uh, you know, whilst yes, if, if it's a film you're engaging with or you're film you're enjoying by all means sit in it and watch it but maybe you know in, in a marathon of 12 films you know you're not going to maybe enjoy everything that's that's on so the idea is that you kind of walk around and, and move around the space um but yeah it, i think the marathons are a, a real interesting endurance test and um we, we've found that you know it, it's a great way to again particularly within the, the horror genre science fiction genre being able to introduce people to films that maybe they haven't heard of in in maybe the, you know the, the, the two a.m. spot. We I used to go to this movie marathon in, in Auckland in New Zealand, which is a twenty four hour movie marathon uh, run by my very good friend Ant Timpson, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a secret marathon. And he had this sort of scientific method of the four a.m. Uh, break film, where he would put a film on that would purposely, uh, I, I suppose, alienate and aggravate the audience uh, to kind of break their spirit at 4 a.m. in the morning. So if, you, if you've ever been in a 24-hour marathon or a marathon that's gone over, you know, 15 hours, you, you, your body actively wants you to leave the space, but your mind is telling you to stay. So the fact that you have these sort of like, you know, kind of polar opposite ideas, like I'm playing a film that you're sitting here watching, but you desperately want to leave. Um, it's almost uh, like that old theory that you'd play um, Sister Ray in order to get people to leave a party. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I love that sort of idea of, of um, that, that kind of curatorial puppet master, like moving the, the pieces on the, the chessboard around uh, with the you know, audience members watching a film. But uh, 24 hours is hard. We, uh, we did a 24-hour one, I think, on our third marathon, and the idea was we started out with... What we, I think we started like with the Monster Squad mm-hmm. at like two o'clock in the afternoon, and the, the idea is we slowly got kind of grimier and, and grittier. And I think we ended up like you know four o'clock in the morning. We had Peter Cushing's Corruption. Right. Um, people weren't so much into that. Um, and the subsequent years, we've just done the very simple kind of from dusk till dawn thing, um, and that seems to have worked really well. The, the Halloween that just passed, we started with Dawn of the Dead, and that um, was a, was a marathon that was probably our most successful marathon, um, and that was a, an anniversaries focused marathon. Even though Dawn of the Dead didn't have an anniversary, but it was an opportunity to play the film. But we we, we played Texas Chainsaw Massacre on thirty five millimeter. Uh, we played a lovely version of Nightmare on Elm Street, and that was all built around anniversaries, and and uh, that that seemed to really strike a chord with people. Cool. Do you feel like the the term horror community gets thrown around quite a lot in you know both of our circles? Uh, do you feel there is one when you kind of 
uh, from your perspective when you're doing these things like, you know, your horror movie marathons for Halloween or if you're screening, um, you know, fa- horror favourites that people are obsessed with, like Nightmare on Elm Street you mentioned or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as everyone should rightfully be obsessed with. But do you feel like there's a community in a sense that there's people who kind of flock to the same thing um, again and again and have this kind of inbuilt... Um, not a network, but this kind of uh, a bit of solidarity within within their fandom. Yeah, I think there's a friendship circle that certainly uh, hooks up, and uh, it's great to see that sort of like communal aspect. Um, I think, yeah, I think that, that that that's very much kind of prevalent at those sessions. I mean, we we um, had an experience. I think it was maybe with the. the the second marathon that we we, we, we put on, on yeah, well maybe it was the third, which was the long one. We we, we got an original print of uh, Hills Have Eyes, mm. uh, which was beautiful. But of course, you know, Hills Have Eyes in this country was uh, very heavily censored uh, upon release. So, you know, the the, the kind of uh, I suppose option then for a lot of people was that they could watch a thirty five millimeter print of a film that they loved, but it was censored, but that was the way that it was introduced to this country. Right. Or if we hadn't played a digital counterpart, that probably would have been uncut. So there was a little bit of conjecture there about what version we should have played. So I don't think you would have that kind of commentary or that engagement with with an audience for, say, something like, um, you know, we, we, we do Lord of the Rings marathons or, or Harry Potter marathons or, or Marvel movie marathons. Like we've done all, all sorts of different marathons. I think, you know, the genre community and the horror genre community is so aware of the, the legacy of the films that they're watching and the history of the films that they're watching that you wouldn't get that engagement at, at, at a, a marathon that wasn't a horror marathon or maybe a science fiction marathon. Mm-hmm. Right, cool. That's that's interesting. So the 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 um, awareness and the kind of uh, the sort of long history they personally have with these films actually lives on into the screenings as well. That's really cool. That's good to know um, because it, 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 I would I would have figured that possibly something like the Marvel universe would have attracted uh, you know the Marvel films would have attracted comic book fandom, um, but the films aren't old enough to have you know, such a legacy that these people have grown up with. They've got the comics to back it up and not these films that haven't, they haven't lived as long as these, you know, these classic horror films from the 60s, 70s and 80s. So that, that makes total sense. Um, those, films, those films are sort of like nowadays, too, they're kind of set in stone. Like, and I think, you know, you're not, you're not going to see the, the censorship history of the, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, like they're very much yeah. sort of like structured <laughs> in the way they're released. Whereas, you know, that's what's so interesting about uh, doing retrospective screenings for particularly genre works is that, that there is a real... Uh, kind of legacy and, and, and everyone's got their own personal engagement with films and particularly in, in the horror world because a lot of us came to certain horror films in different versions or, or, or different ways of viewing them. Absolutely. You mentioned something like with The Hills of Eyes, for instance, the print that you had was the censored version. Um, I've been to the store where the Pink Flamingos print was the censored version um, and it, it wasn't the first time I'd seen it. I'd seen it on video. I, I had had the videotape which wasn't censored. So to see the censored one was actually, I liked it more, not that it was censored, but it was just an interesting it was interesting to see it. What was cut? Um, it's like it's you know it's like that kind of um, obsession that we we film fans have, where you want to see the TV cut of something or the modified for television version, you know, um, which is always fun to grow up with it during the eighties when you see the you know the modified for television um, logo appear with the AO <laughs> accompanying the AO rating. But with say for instance um, that, and then you had the option of say Hills of Eyes played digitally, which would not be censored, and then the audience would be like, ah, oh, you know. 
go either or. Ooh, do we get the? Do we want to see this on print or do we want to see the film, you know, untouched and not cut? But then the print aspect is obviously the major selling point because you you yeah. want you want to see that beautiful film grain and you know the print quality itself. Do you think that that kind of uh, there's a bit of a sort of I don't know is there like a kind of um, uh, you know a bit of a in, inward battle there for audience spectatorship as to what they'd rather see because I remember when John Landis correct me if I'm wrong but John Landis during the arts festival when he was down um, wasn't impressed with the print of I think the Blues Brothers was it the Blues Brothers he thought it looked terrible when he thought that and the digi- he thought the DCP would have been far better because it actually display you know showcased his film how it would have been how it would have how it should have looked rather than just because it's a print doesn't necessarily mean it's going to look better so does that make sense to you does it is there a kind of a little bit of a uh, sort of inward battle there as far as what audiences want and what looks better on screen or does that make sense? Yeah, totally. It, it's a juggling act. I mean, yeah. look, uh, you are right with the, the, the John Landis uh, experience. I mean, that was prior to my tenure at the ASA, but I was in the audience mm. for that session. Uh, and yeah, you know, it's again, it's a, it, when you have a filmmaker, I think present, obviously you've got to go with their, um, uh, you know, their wishes. It, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, only, I think, maybe two days ago, I had an engagement with, with an audience member on, on our social media channel where they asked what what version of Alien. We have Aliens on the upcoming calendar playing it via a 70mm print because the focus on the, the calendar coming out of the COVID closure was to do as much as we can on celluloid because that's going to give uh, audience members a, a cinematic experience that's unmatched by their, their streaming service or their, their home entertainment system. Mm. Um you know, they asked, oh, well, is it the special edition of Aliens? And we were like, no, it's an original 70 millimeter print, uh, you know, the only one in the country. Um, and that's that's what we've chosen to play. And I, oh, no, I, I don't want to see that. I, I want to see the special edition. So, you know, it's very much in the audience members' right to, um, to wish to see those things. Um, for me, as someone who, who, who programs the cinema, I, I'm always interested in what the cinema can offer you that you can't get anywhere else. And I, I have to always fall on the side of the print, mm-hmm. even if it's you know got maybe some minor damage to it or, or, it's or pink. if it is a sense of virgin <laughs> or something, because that that is, you know, you're watching the history of that movie played out in a physical form. That, mm. that print has been with that film and it's been through different audiences and there's this real sort of almost kind of haptic quality of, of seeing a print of a film that's been around since its original inception and the journey that that individual print has taken with the film as a whole. Mm. And I think that that's something that whilst, you know, you can have beautiful digital restorations, you can have director's cuts, special editions, uncut versions, the concept that you're communally experiencing something that was there from the very inception of the film that you love I think is very special yeah. and I don't think a lot of venues can offer that and that's for me personally when programming the venue that I operate that's what I will always default to absolutely and yes kudos to you it is incredibly special um and you forgive the quality because who cares like not who cares but it's like exactly what you're saying it's like this long journey this film has had um and just to see that play out in front of your eyes is beautiful and all and all the imperfections i feel are beautiful i've seen many prints just some that comes to come to mind i remember the um when when the tim burton uh exhibition was happening in melbourne at acme they played a lot of his films and i went to see only a few because i only could stomach 
make a few, but one was um, The Fox and the Hound because um, he worked as an animator on that and that was just gorgeous and it was grainy as hell and it was, you know, um, bleached out. It was very sort of washed out um, and it was beautiful. It was the most be- beautiful thing ever, I've ever seen because you could see that it had this sort of, you know, longevity since 1981 um, and then it was one of the... It was the print we were told it was the print that would um recirculate when disney would have their um you know resurgence like the the the, the revivalist screenings or the the the, the screenings that would happen the again the reissued version yeah so it was like oh, i was nice to see that it was from the 81 and then you know re- resurrected um in mainstream cinemas not in rep screenings or as part of an exhibition but you know as a reissue so that was really cool to see that and then um bat- seeing batman returns um was really interesting because it was like wow this is the print that i would have maybe have seen or you know a relative print of the one i saw when i was a kid seeing it at the cinema um in 92 or whenever it was out but uh yeah so th- that kind of thing is so true so it's, it's really special and it, i think you know it, it gives you a talking point too because you know i think anyone who's a film fan probably owns a, a copy of their favorite film in in, in Many different formats, you know. But you, you, you know, I, I remember, you know, like the the, the, the the tape I had of Blue Velvet, for example. Always, for whatever reason, used to give out at a certain amount of time, and you, you remember that. Mm. And you know, seeing a seeing a print with with a blemish or or, or something that should be there that isn't there, you you remember that experience. Mm. Uh, and it's not just you know the film playing in the background. You you're actually forced to engage with the film and I think you know whilst it might not be a filmmaker's uh, dream to see their work (laughs) censored um, you know watching the film is watching film history and it's watching film history in your country and I think that's you know really vital to your your exposure to that film and, and your fandom of that film Absolutely. Um, speaking of fandom, you obviously you are uh, not so obvious people, <laughs> but you are a fan of the Twin Peaks series, and you have done a lot of panels and discussions, and you know you've hosted a lot of panels and discussions with people in the industry, whether they're um, you know visiting guests or you've gone over to to, to um, work alongside them, and you've curated stuff for television as well as live panels and uh, event screenings, etc., and for film festivals, etc. And one of them was the Twin Peaks um, event that was here a couple of years ago, which sort of um, bookended the series debuting on on, on um, streaming services. I forgot which one it was, but uh, uh, Showtime, I believe, and uh, out here it was Stan. That's right. Cool. And yeah, th- there was a whole bunch of people there. There was Cheryl, Cheryl Lee and Dana Ashbrook and um, uh, Kimmy Robertson. It was it was fantastic. Do you what was that like? And do you like doing these events? Are you a big fan of hosting these great events? Because you're very good at it, Zach. Well, and and I'll, I'll, I'll return the compliment to you as well. You're quite good at it as well. But uh, look, I, I uh, am always a nervous wreck uh, <laughs> before I do them. Uh, but there is an incredible rush uh, whilst doing them and, and speaking to people. And uh, Are you more of a nervous wreck if it's something that you're really uh, invested in or if it's something that you're not? Like, do you know what I mean? Like Twin Peaks is a big uh, deal. No, always a nervous wreck for every one of them. Always okay. write them and say the wrong thing, or <laughs> forget forget who I am, or, or something. I mean, um, the Twin Peaks one, particularly for me, was 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 a huge honour to do, and I'm very thankful for the event organisers for, for for inviting me to do it. I, I flew interstate to do it, and um, yeah, being able to speak to to, to Cheryl and Dana and, and Michael Horse and, and Kimmy and and all the people, Sabrina, Sabrina who's producer of the the, the the series, they skyped David Lynch in. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I always um, try to get a good rhythm 
with with people when I'm talking to them in those panels because uh, I'm sure they've done them a lot and, and you want to give them a little bit of something unique and something extra. So I, I always really strive for that, which which might feed into my anxiety of doing them. Uh, but, uh, you know, look, I've been very, very fortunate. I've, I've spoken to Tom Savini over Skype, which was a, a very interesting conversation. I've spoken to Paul Thomas Anderson in person uh, when he travelled around Australia. Um, Brian Cox, um, which, you know, I, I, I was so close to ask, asking him a question about Manhunter that I didn't ask him. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think, you know, it's, um, again, I think it goes to that respect of the craft and, and, and the respect of the material that you're engaging with and, and, the, and the respect of the, the makers of that material. And I think those practitioners and those creators can, can tell very quickly if you're not being authentic. Mm-hmm. And, I think authenticity is the number one uh, quality that you should have when you're moderating those Q and A's, and have a real engagement with with what you're doing. And um, even if it's maybe not something that you're overtly familiar with, the fact that you've done your research or you've showed it the respect to, to uh, engage with, with with their creation, uh, people pick up on that, and, and people are really receptive to that, and that always leads to a good conversation. Absolutely, and you've got terrific feedback because I remember Dana Ashbrook emailed me because I remember interviewing him for Fangoria years ago, and we kept in touch and he emailed me uh, quite literally as soon as you guys got off the panel where was it in Perth were you in Perth, Perth but, yeah and he's like oh Zach was definitely by, hands down the best out of the people who did the nice. panels ago that, that, of course I, I think I emailed you straight away you know <laughs> Music, music to my ears. Let's just like, that, that's that's what we want to hear. But um, no, that, that that was something kind of kind of like going back to the start of the conversation, like that when we we I did a Twin Peaks, uh, 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 yeah, screening sometimes, uh, particularly with, with the film. Like it's always very special when we play David Lynch stuff, um, moving through the Talking head stuff, and particularly when you actually get to meet people, they're in, engaged with with the um, the event. You know, there, there's just this real sense of um, synergy. Uh, uh, that that that's probably a very uh, for a buzzword, but yeah, everything just kind of snaps into place, and everything just feels sort of right. So um, yeah, it's a great reminder of you know why you do what you do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, another thing that you do is you are on television uh, here in Melbourne talking about films and doing criticism, uh, critiquing films and discussing them with the two hosts. Um, and that's always fun to watch. And just recently, <laughs> I don't know if we can bring this up, but recently you pretty much poo-pooed a series. Is it a series? I don't watch new things. So filming in, but it was the it's the Steve Carell show and there was a bit of, you know, um, people sort of, you know, talking about it and discussing it online. Can you talk us through that? What what happened there, Zach? So, well, look, I, I, I viewed the uh, the Steve Carell series, uh, Space Force. Generally, generally how I uh, do this segment is um, we're usually doing theatrical films, but right. uh, obviously that's not really an option at the moment, so we've, we've moved it into a, a streaming platform. Uh, so I'm reviewing streaming content. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to just hold my hand up and say I, I didn't care for Steve Carell's Space Force. It's a... <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, uh, apparently a, a satirical comedy. Um, I didn't see the satire in it. Uh, uh, I said as much as you know. If you, I think, if you're being a critic, you're you're allowed to 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 say your views on things. Doesn't necessarily mean you're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole idea is that you know, criticism and, and, and commentary is supposed to create a discourse about uh, content. And um, I think a lot of the time, uh, if you say you don't like something, people that do like it immediately say you're wrong. 
which is very much their prerogative to do. Uh, but uh, that that experience of uh, a lot of people saying that I was wrong uh, illustrated to me that you know there's always uh, time for engagement. There's always time for discussion, and I think that was something I took home for that. Like I I really like the idea that people didn't agree with me because it it meant that there was people that were engaging with that content in a different way that I was engaging with it. And the whole idea is that we're supposed to have a discourse about it and, and discuss why some people like something or the themes that they picked up on or, or, or what was there for them versus what I didn't pick up on and what wasn't there for me. Uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, you know, whilst there was a, you know, a, a few, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, very uh, uh, aggressively worded tweets <laughs> that came my way. Um, uh, I'm, I'm all for it, and I, I, I never am suggesting that I'm correct mm. when I'm saying something. It's just purely my opinion, and if you enjoy something that I critique badly, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong either. So yeah. Well, you, may, you create a conversation. That's what the best critics do, huh? And speak, exactly. speaking of critics, who did you grow up reading? Who, who are some of your favourite film academics and critics and uh, film essayists? Well, I've got to just generally because we had such a lack of uh, available content in uh, the town I grew up, I actually got uh, a, a CD-ROM disc. It was a, a Microsoft disc. It was like Cinemania or something like that, um, and that had the writings of Lennon Moulton, Roger Ebert, and Pauline Kael, and they had clips and and uh, interview segments and, and all of that. So that that was where I found a lot of interesting writing and, and a lot of interesting guides on, on different cinema, and that really it, it exposed me to Fellini's Eight and a Half for the first time. Um, so many different... It's amazing because, uh, Zach, I had that as well, and it had these segments. Um, there was a thing where Sandra Bernhard was talking about, about you know, uh, Golden Age actresses, and there was a John Waters thing talking about William Castle. And, uh, <laughs> I forgot the John Waters. That's, yes, yes, that was incredible. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So that, yeah, that's a. I love that. That's your. That's your in that, into film criticism. That that Microsoft disc. It's great. I, I still have it with my Encarta nineteen ninety seven somewhere <laughs> deep, deep in the archives. Fantastic. That's awesome. Um. So the so you so you're doing this TV um critical uh assessment of stuff that's being streamed because of COVID. Do you think that streaming is sort of limiting what people are able to view and do you feel personally and you don't have to be biased here because you're speaking to me but because you've also worked on home media but do you feel like blu-ray and dvd sales you know should remain strong because that's why that's that's the way people can actually access stuff and buy what they want to see does that does that mean yeah, look, I, I really think, you know, again, it goes back to that, that, that idea of uh, audience appetite. And I think, you know, the, 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 the Blu-ray makers and, and the, 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 the physical media makers have done such a beautiful job in engaging fandom and, and, and uh, people within the industries to, to create supplements and, and, and packages that um, really speak to that audience base. And I, I don't know if, you know, anyone who's a, a streamer is going to jump camp in order to be a, a physical media uh, buyer mm. and you know that that's probably a good thing in a way because i think you know the, the 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 physical media has found its audience and i think you know it's just up to the the fan base to to continue to support that uh because you know streaming is there i, I use it it's something i use 
professionally and something I also use from my own viewing habits. But, mm. you know, it's a very kind of transient experience and it's um, something that I think when you are a film fan and you're a lover of genre or you're a lover of a specific sort of film, you'll always want to hold it. And, mm. uh, you know, much to the detriment of every time I move house um, <laughs> is my own uh, philosophy on that. You know, I have a lot of uh, books, a lot of... Uh, Just stop being a gypsy, settle. Well, I'm trying to. Yeah. I'm trying to. People, every time I review a new series that people don't like, I have to move right. town. That's part of the, part of the They'll job. They'll feather so. and tar you. That's right. Um, so back to the streaming thing, that's because of, you know, people are at home a lot because of COVID. But now, this is a big backtrack to how we started the conversation, the COVID restrictions are kind of starting to sort of, you know, um, disappear or sort of at least, you know, settle. Um, in a sense and the Astor is about to reopen which is very exciting news and that really great image of Duke the Astor cat you know welcoming his people back is quite lovely um, so can you talk about how that's going to happen how how you guys you know presenting films are you, with, with, with you know restrictions as far as audiences um, being in the cinema um, being too close to one another blah 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 how, how are you how are you preparing for the the new sort of vibe for the Astor? Uh, you know, we're, we're obviously very much uh, aware of the government guidelines and they, they're, they're changing uh, very frequently and we're, we're adhering to them, uh, making sure we have the physical distancing in place within the cinema and also within the foyers. Uh, again, I think it goes back to that kind of audience trust. Uh, I think people are very much aware that we're across uh, that and we want to have a safe environment for our staff and also our patrons. And, yeah, the calendar that we relaunched with, uh, whilst we do have a, a reduced seating capacity, it is proving to be very popular and people are, are, are booking out tickets and we've sold out a, a number of sessions, Excellent. which I'm very, very, very thankful to say. Our opening night film uh, really had to be... 2001 A Space Odyssey in 70mm because that's a film that has been with the Astor for so long and again that's about knowing your audience and engaging with your audience because that, that sold out in just over 24 hours. So, uh, people are very excited about going back out to the movies mm. uh, albeit in a, a sort of COVID safe way, uh, you know, being very cognizant of, of what we all need to do in the community in order to keep each other uh, safe and sound uh, but yeah I think there's a real thirst for communal activities again and cinema has always offered that to, to, to people as, as a safe environment and I think that's a real clear indication that people know that and you know people just want to get back in there so it's you know very 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 flattering uh, and very uh, really humbling to, to, to be uh, the sort of shepherd of, of that location because it means so much to so many people. It's beautiful. And the fact that, you know, we were closed for just three months, um, but people literally are backing the door down to get back in is, is really something that's overwhelmingly um, uh, quite emotional in a way. Because, um, you know, to, to be honest, when, 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 when everything was going down in, in March here in, in, in this country, uh, we, we really didn't know what the future was. Mm. Um, you know, because what is what is the place of a of a retrospective cinema uh, when literally everyone is about to go into their own sort of cocoon and, and engage with with retrospective content uh, online? And I think you know 
there's there's a reason the building's always been there, and there's a reason I think it will always continue to be there is because people people want to share movies together, mm. and I think that that's that's really what we're seeing now as we we come back into this 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 very different uh, landscape. But uh, the the main thing that is the consistent there is that the love of cinema and the love of seeing movies on the big screen. Absolutely. And well said, and I'm glad you're the shepherd to do it because you do such a beautiful job and you're right. It is that kind of um, community feel of being in the cinema together. You know, uh, Gloria Swanson says it, you know, to my people in the dark. And it's that kind, it's that nice communal um, uh, acknowledgement of cinema to get as a, as a, as a together sort of entity is something that we can all experience together in the dark. But do you feel like Melbourne is sort of um, very blessed and I guess also spoiled in that regard as far as so much options and so many things going on and also that there's this really healthy, strong, vibrant film community and a film-centric community that goes on in Melbourne. Like we are pretty heavily film orientated i think i feel compared to other cities um and i think that's something that we should champion and that's something that sort of builds into the into what you're talking about where there is this kind of nice um communal shared experience of seeing films and experiencing film and talking film and you've got so many film um writers and people who work in the industry and um work as critics and work as programmers it's just this endless sort of amazing uh, you know, extended family of film folk, which is quite cool. Do you think that's something that Melvin is kind of uh, a big deal in that regard? Oh, very much so. And, and but you know, I'll, I'll I'll say that you know that's only there whilst it's being supported. Yes. And if <laughs> if you if you just take it for granted and you It'll think go. that it's always just there on the periphery, it it goes. Mm. Uh, and I think that's what we've seen probably in some of the other. Uh, states within Australia that 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 sort of film community is just you know for whatever reason become complacent or or has sort of just kind of turned off and you know these institutions vanish if that's the case and it's very sad and there, there, there's been a number of uh, of great institutions uh, in the state that have just kind of just you know gone um, mm. and once they're gone they don't come back uh, so you know I feel so less that the ass has been able to cultivate that that audience and this is long before long before I was involved with it you know um, but being able to to keep that going um, is is really vital and you know it, it's just I think just goes back to the fact that people need to support the things they love and if if you're passionate about cinema and you're passionate about movies you want to introduce people to those films you want to introduce people to those experiences and and that's how a culture continues yes uh, what are some what are some rewarding experiences from you personally Zach where you've introduced someone to something um, that they haven't seen or that they weren't really uh, comfortable not comfortable um, uh, familiar with um, that you've kind of took back and gone oh cool I've done you know I've done something you know <laughs> that I feel really good about and I've enlightened someone and, and introduced them to something and also the flip of that can you tell me an example of someone else who's sort of you know suggested something that sort of now resonated and stays with you forever it's a really good question um because that's, I feel like that's the core of film community. It's the idea of introducing people to film and sharing film. Um, I think it's because it, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Like you go into a cinema 
and you, yeah, you got your friends or your wife or your husband or your girlfriend, your partner, or your you know the the, the crew or your family, or you're on your own, um, and then you're all in the dark, and then you leave. <laughs> there's not re- there's not really you know what I mean. It's not like uh, going to see bands or no you know. no no. Look, I, I, I again, I, I, I've mentioned the film a number of times, but it's worthy of being mentioned a couple of times. Is uh, when, when Toby Hooper died, uh, we did a tribute screening of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre on 35mm film, which one of the original 35mm prints that was very, very, very subsequently brought into this country after its initial release overseas. And uh, that was the first time my wife had seen that film. Uh, so being able to introduce her to that film at the Astor on 35mm to, to honour the career uh, of Toby Hooper was was, was really special. Nice. And that, that's something. Uh, and, you know, again, I wasn't 100 sure what she was going to think of the film. Uh, did she, she like really, it? She did. She yeah. did. She really she really appreciated it for um, everything that that film does right and every way that film grips an audience. And that that film is an incredible film to watch in a cinema loud because mm. it's it, it's you know again I, I remember reading a, a review of that film or, or, or hearing an interview about it where. Uh, the, the film wants to hurt you, and right. I love that idea of that, where the film wants to imprint on you, mm-hmm. and you, once you see this film, you won't be able to forget it. And I, I love that 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 kind of rationale behind it. Um, on the other side of that, uh, and it's something that probably you and I share. I, you mentioned our Mad Monster Party session uh, that I did when I was doing some uh, programming at Cinema Nova, part of the Cult Catastrophe program that I did, yeah. uh, and I played Mad Monster Party in. Because Man Monster Party is a shorter film, I put a, a series of uh, short films and clips in front of it, and you were there, Lee. And do, do you remember? Oh fuck yeah! Do you remember one of the clips that yeah. I? Yeah. So it was Rosie the dog. Thank you, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain what Rosie the dog is to people? Not, not really. Oh. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a, a, a performer. Uh, dressed in a, in a full dog costume, uh, and we happen upon uh, this character as uh, he appears to be uh, digging for a bone in a in a trash can that could very well be Oscar the Grouch's trash can, and then he just sort of uh, engages with you. Uh, he breaks the fourth wall. Yeah. So, so, so Rosie the dog. It's something weird. Actually, own the rights to that, and it's really yeah. cool that they do. But it's like a. It's basically like a PSA about running away from home. So exactly. as a little boy who meets Rosie, and Ro- Rosie's like Brooklyn, you know, he's this dog, and he uh, he goes home with little Timmy, uh, and the sister and the mum and dad are like, nah. He's not staying, but it's to sort of t- tell kids not to to run away. But it's it just it stuck with me. I am obsessed with it. So thank you, Zach, for introducing me to that. <laughs> and also, I love that you you screened because I love your little pre packages before movies. It's a really it's really it's all done with so much love and it's so cool and curated so beautifully. And I remember when you screened. I believe you screened. Uh, the howling and I mean so uh, before that you had like dog and wolf and um, you know things with paws yeah. as as a thematic sort of connection as trailer reel and you did the pack 77's Robert Klaus film which I adore as we as you know um, and that was really nice to see the the trailer of that on the big screen it was like fuck you know when do I when do you see that <laughs> so that was and what, what, the, the, you know some of those trailers are their own works of art as well yeah uh, yeah, um, again, I think, you know, it, it just goes back to that idea of creating experience and, you know, um, it, it, it's, look, you know, it, it's hard to get some people off the couch away from things and when, if you're going to get them in the cinema, you should give them something to remember mm-hmm. and I think destabilising the pre-show 
by doing something. We like, we would play regular ads, but then we would just drop in a trailer or we'd drop in the the, the Rosie clip or something. It just it, 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 it clicks you out of your reality mm. uh, because everyone's so used to, oh, well, I'm going to go to the movies now and there's going to be 15 minutes of ads that I don't want to watch in front of it. Mm-hmm. And when, when you just drop something in that ad package or that trailer reel, it just snaps people out of their sort of, I suppose, zone out that they're in and yeah. you remember that and people remember that and I think that that's something I've always been really fascinated by absolutely and and just to the answer the other question the flip of you introducing that to Laura to Texas Chainsaw Massacre to Laura and you introducing Rosie the dog to me um, I'm, I'm sure both uh, you know amazing life-changing moments for Laura and I but for you has who who has been someone that's introduced you to something that you've been like wowed with and forevermore will be wowed by that certain film that particular I film. think um, I'll have to go back to w- what I was mentioning earlier in our chat where I w- was going to those uh, secret film marathons mm. and I, I really uh, I didn't uh, have any idea what I was about to see and I saw in that uh, the, the Devils cool. which was very hard to get a copy of mm. uh, uh, for a while and seeing that on on 35 millimeter, I'd never seen the film. Um, uh, there, there is a real electricity that went through the crowd, and, and certainly through me. And again, that's a film that I adore uh, for so many different reasons. But I'll always go back to, to that screening where, when it came up, and anyone who's seen The Devils knows that the, the opening credit sequence of The Devils is not anything like the film you're about to see. Yeah. Uh, it's this very sort of almost kind of broke opera that you kind of walk into with this sort of like pageantry and, and performative aspect and then it immediately kind of cuts to the, the kind of visceral wastelands uh, with, you know, decomposing bodies and whatnot. So, yeah, um, you know, that, that that was really special to me, you know, going into something that I had no idea what I was about to see and uh, and coming out the other end. So yeah, and, that's, that's true. Funny. And also, even if you even if you knew of Ken Russell's work, his work is so eclectic and so different. Um, so you know, you'd be oh yeah, I know his work, I know his mood, I know, I know the style, I know his aesthetics. But then you see the Devils, like oh, okay, that's nothing like you know the boyfriend. Like they're so magnificently different that's the that's the mastery of his work that's one aspect of his mastery um i just want to talk quickly before we wrap up zach just where you feel the future where you feel yeah the future of retrospective screenings are going in this sort of day and age where people have such stuff you know there's there's so much access to classic cinema um people can stream as you say downloading which are you know is the death of all industry um and then also home media and people sort of not wanting to venture out what what, where do you see what what would you tell those people and where do you see it sort of going like this whole beautiful you know collective um embracing of cinema as as a communal effort where do you see it going I, i think the onus really is on on the programmers or the event organisers to do something that gets people away from their home or their home entertainment system or all mm. their their you know downloads or whatever because you know I, I, the way I see it particularly in, in, in web cinema 
the there's an eventization that needs to occur. Now, I'm, I'm not talking like a, everything has to be a Rocky Horror type sort of eventization, but yeah, maybe it's a a, a, a panel or, or an academic discussion beforehand, which I you know I, I know that the Cinemania group that you're involved with Lee does so well. And uh, you know, for us, you know, maybe it is that that weird pre-show, or maybe it is that film playing on a print you've never seen before. You, you have to legitimise certain films by by doing these. And when I mean legitimise films, I don't mean the actual film itself. I mean the film screening. Um, you know, there's a lot of content out there that just kind of drops into the black hole. And like, you know, if we were to put on a just you know random retro movie. Maybe it wouldn't get as many people as if we did uh, a film with with a panel or, or, or with a pre-show or via a film thing. So I think you've got to be very kind of cluey, and I think it goes back to that kind of idea of you know um, uh, showmanship or you know or show you know, showpersonship. You know, yeah. I think you know you really you, you've got to um, give people a bang for their buck, and you've got to show them something they can't see anywhere else, and. Um, you know that that's a challenge, and sometimes it doesn't work, and sometimes it does. But when it does work, and you see a full house, you you have that kind of environment. You, you, people are reminded why they they left their house, and mm. that's the ultimate challenge. And that's why you keep doing it, and I think you keep learning, and you you, you keep uh, doing the thing because, as I said, the, the, the show's got to go on. Absolutely, and I love that you champion all eras and all genres and all aspects of of genre. Um, you know, making sure that people understand that you know, not all slasher films are one thing, and not all you know, um, uh, you know, Euro crime film is one thing. You know, there's a whole. It's a whole vast, varied thing. Cinema in itself, uh, you know, genre in itself, and I think that's something the Astor does really well. Uh, and also, just the nice combo double features are always really cool. And I love. I've always loved grabbing that as you call you know melbourne's wallpaper and looking for the thematic connections between the double features or is there a connection and that was always something to sort of you know um look at and sort of take into consideration as well with the programming whether it's you yourself or people prior to you and i think that's something important as well because it is broadening it's 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 part of the job it's broadening people's minds as far as to what they should see and what they would might enjoy or might not enjoy or just at least give films a chance and i think that's something that rep screenings uh do so well they they give films a chance um another another sort of another life um outside of their initial run is always very appreciative when people uh, look at the calendar and sort of see the connections because we, we do put a little bit of work into that uh, and uh, yeah it's, it's always very very appreciative when people pick up on those little mini connections but um, yeah you know it's I, I do it because I used to do it you know and I, <laughs> the, the idea that someone that's looking at that calendar will hopefully do it when I'm not doing it anymore is, is always a nice idea as well beautiful well thank you so much Zach it's been a pleasure uh, great being talking with you Lee and I, I just I just I just like talking movies so I'm, um, yeah. I'm always around so thanks for having me Dave do you mind if I ask you a personal question no not at all I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission how do you mean Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. 
Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. <laughs>